Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. You must Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, The Blacklist. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? A quarantine is necessary to keep it from infecting the nation. and advocates the views expressed. I had my way about it. They'd all be sent back to Russia. Back to Russia. Today's episode deals with three 20th century legends who put their careers on the line to protest the activities of the House Un-American Activities Committee. Humphrey Bogart and John Huston were the figurehead and co-founder of the Committee for the First Amendment, which famously organized to send an airplane full of celebrities to Washington, D.C. to support the unfriendly 19 during the 1947 HUAC hearings, while Katharine Hepburn used a rally to support left-wing politician Henry Wallace as the stage to deliver a blistering attack on HUAC, and what she rightly foresaw as a curtailing of the free speech of artists to come. What's interesting is that when Bogart, Houston, and Hepburn took these activist stands, they didn't foresee the damage they were doing to their reputations within a media climate that was fully caught up in anti-communist fervor. And when they did finally see it, all three jumped into some form of damage control. The mission was still to some extent critical when the director and two stars teamed up to make The African Queen, 
a movie which would repair all of their reputations, but particularly Humphrey Bogart's. Join us, won't you, for the blacklist stories of Humphrey Bogart, John Huston, and Katherine Hepburn. I never dreamed that any experience could be so stimulating. At the close of World War II, Humphrey Bogart was Warner Brothers' most valuable star. He was in his late 40s and newly married to Lauren Bacall. The pair, who had met on the set of Bacall's first film, To Have and Have Not, would soon prove their on-screen chemistry was no fluke. With their second and third collaborations, The Big Sleep and Dark Passage, released in 1946 and 1947. Bogart had his share of misses mixed in with the hits, but he also had enough power and capital that he was able to team with his friend Mark Hellinger to start a production company to help launch projects that he loved that studios were less enthusiastic about. This was a huge deal, because Warner Brothers wasn't MGM. Jack Warner didn't care about stars, and he refused to coddle even his most famous specimens. Both Bogart and his female counterpart at the studio, Betty Davis, were constantly being put on paid suspensions for attempting to protect their own star power by refusing to appear in low-quality movies that the studio needed a big star to legitimize. The first film to benefit from Bogart's helping hand was The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, the passion project of Bogart's friend and Maltese Falcon director, John Huston. The film, about greed and paranoia amongst American gold prospectors in Mexico, was shot in the spring of 1947, in Tampico on the Gulf of Mexico. Bacall was on set. Bogart's co-star would be Houston's father, Walter Houston. Jack Warner first saw a cut of Sierra Madre in the fall of 1947, and he loved it. He was sure it would do great business. Which it did. But Warner and the Sierra Madre principals soon found themselves on opposite sides of a divide. Jack Warner would be the first person to testify before HUAC in September 1947. He wasn't subpoenaed. He volunteered. He had spoken to the committee that spring in closed-door sessions and had admitted to John Houston that he had named the names of a few people he thought might be communists. When Houston told Warner that he didn't approve, Warner showed remorse. But then, when the public hearings were announced, Warner was literally first in line to offer testimony. Warner, you'll remember from the second episode in this series, was the guy who told the committee that he would personally fund a pest removal fund to eliminate the subversive termites from the industry. These actions of Jack Warner's are surprising, given that his studio's entire M.O. had seemed to fit the definition of what was now being called premature anti-fascism. Warner Brothers had been the first studio to make an openly anti-Nazi film, with confessions of a Nazi spy in 1939. They were also the first studio to close their business in Nazi Germany. They had always been known as the only studio to regularly make movies with a social conscience, and that conscience was, more often than not, left-leaning. How had Jack Warner gone from that place to the place that had him opening the HUAC hearings? 
Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. He had felt personally wounded by the strikes at his studio a couple of years before. Strikes which Warner, like many men in power, like pretty much everyone who wasn't striking, blamed on communist infiltration of the guilds, led by Herb Sorrell. Sorrell's sworn enemy, Roy Brewer, who worked to break the strikes on behalf of the studio-controlled union Yahtzee, acknowledged that Sorrell wasn't technically a member of the Communist Party, but Brewer said it didn't matter because, quote, the real communists are hidden. This is the level that people were operating on, and that's why, in this climate, the only way to absolve oneself of suspicion was to point the finger at others. And that's what motivated Warner's testimony as much as his actual hatred for the communists, who he thought had made for a few unproductive and even violent days on the Warner's lot. After the war, Warner quickly realized that the tide had turned, and now he regretted the films his studio had made, many at the request of the U.S. government, which shined a friendly light on things like Joseph Stalin's USSR and the Russian people, particularly Mission to Moscow. So when Warner volunteered to speak to Huak, he was being proactive, going on the offensive so that he wouldn't be forced to play defense. It's possible that he went intending only to clear his studio's name. But according to his son, Jack Jr., in front of the committee, under the lights, surrounded by cameras, Jack Warner panicked. And that's when he started naming names. Jack Jr. said his father was essentially grasping names out of thin air. As they were walking out of the congressional building, Jack Warner said to his son, I didn't do so good, did I? I shouldn't have given names. I was a schmuck. Jack Warner Jr. thought, but didn't say, yes, you were. As late as that summer, no one had taken Huak all that seriously. Bogart, who had been questioned and cleared the first time the committee's then-chair came to Hollywood, assumed this go-round would be just like the last time. The politicians would glom on to some celebrities looking to get their own names in the headlines, and then, once that was accomplished, they'd head back to Washington, with no real harm done and nothing accomplished, save for the usual waste of taxpayer dollars. J. Parnell Thomas, now leading the HUAC committee, was certainly an attention seeker. But unlike his predecessors, he realized he could dominate the media for even longer if he actually managed to get something done. And so, subpoenas were sent, and Hollywood suddenly had to scramble to figure out how to respond. The first meeting of what would be called the Committee for the First Amendment took place at Ira Gershwin's house. Everyone was there. Or at least, everyone who wasn't a member of the right-wing Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals. So Rita Hayworth, 
Groucho Marx, Gene Kelly, Danny Kaye, and Mr. and Mrs. Bogart. The cause that united this starry group was not communism. If you asked most of them, this move into activism was not politically slanted one way or another. The group was united behind the principles of free speech and free assembly. They believed that American citizens had the right to believe whatever they wanted, without having to answer to Congress for it. Many of them also believed, or at least would claim afterwards that they had believed, that the unfriendly 19 were innocent of the charges against them. After the hearings, some members of the Committee for the First Amendment would claim that they didn't realize they were lending their support to actual communists, who, of course, as American citizens, were also entitled to the protections of the First Amendment, at least in theory. An exception was John Houston, who acknowledged in his autobiography that he had known many communists in Hollywood. And, unlike some of his compatriots who rushed to revise their own histories post-HUAC, Houston acknowledged that he knew the communists were communists. He even admitted to having attended a few party meetings, quote, out of curiosity. Houston wrote, The communists I knew were liberals and idealists and would have been appalled at the idea of trying to overthrow the United States government. At that time, no one knew about the Gulag Archipelago and Stalin's mass murders. I marveled at the innocence of these good but simple people who actually believed this was a way to improve the social condition of mankind. For many who participated in the Committee for the First Amendment, it wasn't a question of supporting communists or attacking anti-communists, so much as it was about standing up for the film industry itself, which was being smeared on newspapers nationwide, day and night. So first, the committee bought their own space in newspapers and used it to publish a statement of their beliefs, which were mostly constitutional, but also included the insistence that while the group opposed communism, quote, mass hysteria is no way to fight it. This was the most reasonable contribution that anyone had made to this debate in a while. So of course, it had no impact. Then came Hollywood Fights Back, a nationwide radio show produced by a host of writers and stars. They performed the labor after hours, semi-clandestinely. Lou Wasserman arranged to leave the front door of his agency, MCA, open after 7 p.m. so that the committee could use his offices as a production headquarters. But the studio heads knew the show was happening, and they didn't try to stop it. Nor did anyone complain when the Committee for the First Amendment sponsored a rally at the Shrine Auditorium in honor of the 19. Spirits in the room were so high that night that as Hollywood 10 member Alva Bessie later put it, you would have thought we had the House Committee licked to a standstill before we ever got into the ring. But John Houston was already feeling uneasy. Before the 19 departed for Washington, Houston and writer Philip Dunn were called to a meeting of the subpoenaed by the attorneys for the unfriendlies. At the meeting, Houston suggested a game plan. What I think they should do is to gather on the steps of the Capitol before going in to testify and tell the press exactly what they are, if they are communists or not. Then after they've made a public statement, they should go before the committee and refuse to testify on the grounds that the proceedings are unconstitutional. 
The attorneys sheepishly said that this plan wouldn't work. They had already convinced their clients that the only course of action was to refuse to answer questions about their political status in any venue, in part to clear the way for the accused to sue the studios should they be denied employment. Houston was annoyed. Not that my idea had been all that good. It was rather that the response to it was weak and shifty. The other outcome of the formation of the committee was the decision, spearheaded by Houston, Dunn, and director William Wyler, to send a brigade of stars to Washington in support of the unfriendly 19. This came after a portion of the group gathered at Wyler's house one night to listen to Hollywood 10 member Adrian Scott describe on speakerphone how things were going in Washington. Lauren Bacall remembered Scott's description of J. Parnell Thomas's gavel pounding. She got the impression that the accused had been set up to fail, and her heart bled. How dare that bastard Thomas treat people this way, Bacall thought. What was happening to our country? Again, this trip was not intended as a pro-communist statement. Dunn, who was the writer of the 10th highest grossing film of the year, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, had a bigger current hit than anyone else on the trip, was a fervent anti-communist who was against HUAC strictly as a matter of free speech principle. This has nothing to do with communism. It's none of my business who's a communist and who isn't, Bogart said in a statement in advance of the journey. The reason I am flying to Washington is because I am an outraged and angry citizen who feels that my civil liberties are being taken away from me and that the Bill of Rights is being abused and who feels that nobody in this country has any right to kick around the Constitution of the United States, not even the Un-American Activities Committee. A number of participants in Hollywood Fights Back, including Houston, Weiler, Bogart, Bacall, Gene Kelly, and Marsha Hunt, pre-recorded their segments and then hopped on a chartered TWA plane, generously provided at a low cost by Howard Hughes, who personally called Houston at the Brown Derby to offer it. That this offer would be made by Hughes, who soon started making a name for himself as one of Hollywood's fiercest and most financially reckless supporters of HUAC and enemy of so-called subversives, would seem to offer the best evidence that before takeoff, no one believed that casting one's lot against the hearings was the equivalent of supporting communism. The plane made several stops throughout the country to refuel between Los Angeles and Washington, and everywhere they stopped, the celebrities on board met regular Americans who voiced their support. On the plane, the stars gathered in the cockpit where they could listen to the Hollywood Fights Back broadcast over the radio. This is the first couple of minutes of the broadcast, featuring contributions from Charles Boyer and Judy Garland. Hollywood fights back! This is Charles Boyer. The reason why parts of this program are transcribed is that 14 of the 50 stars you are about to hear are at this moment in a special plane flying to Washington to carry on in person the fight for our rights as American citizens. If it weren't for studio commitments, all of us here today and dozens more would be in the air as well as on it. 
This is Judy Garland. Have you been to a movie this week? You're going to a movie tonight? Or maybe tomorrow? Look around the room. Are there any newspapers lying on the floor? Any magazines on your table? Any books on your shelves? It's always been your right to read or see anything you wanted to. But now it seems to be getting kind of complicated. For the past week in Washington, the House Committee on Un-American Activities has been investigating the film industry. Now, I have never been a member of any political organization, but I've been following this investigation, and I don't like it. There are a lot of stars here to speak to you. We're show business, yes, but we're also American citizens. It's one thing if someone says we're not good actors. That hurts, but we can take that. It's something else again to say we're not good Americans. We resent that. Up in the plane, the stars felt good about their message and the idea that they could speak directly to the American people all at once about something so important. This would be the high point of the trip for many. Their lofty ideals came crashing down to earth soon. There's something a little cringeworthy about all of these stars up in the stratosphere admiring the power of their own performances when down on the ground a few days later... Their reviews of their supposed compatriots, the writers and directors called to defend themselves before HUAC, were withering. John Huston perhaps had the earliest change of heart. He seems to have expected these writers, directors, and producers to have the same cool elegance and inherent understanding of how to win over a room that he had. But they did not. And in fact, while the red-faced Thomas and friends barked questions and cut off the witnesses' attempts to offer evasive answers, men like Albert Maltz and John Howard Lawson raised their own voices and lost their cool. The cumulative effect of watching one man after another engage in a futile shouting match with Thomas's gavel disillusioned Houston quickly. He later observed, It was a sorry performance. You felt your skin crawl and your stomach turn. I disapproved of what was being done to the Ten, but I also disapproved of their response. They had lost a chance to defend a most important principle. Bacall and Bogart remained fired up by the principle, if not the performance. Bogart appeared on a second installment of Hollywood Fights Back the following week. We saw the gavel of a committee chairman cutting off the words of free Americans. The sound of that gavel, Mr. Thomas, rings across America. Because every time your gavel struck, it hit the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. And Bacall wrote an essay published in the Washington Post, in which she delivered what might have been the first glimpse the general public got into the climate of fear that had already permeated Hollywood. She wrote... The only way I can think of to point up the seriousness of this is to explain to you what will happen to the motion pictures you go to see two or three times a week. You have no idea of the fear that has overtaken Hollywood. A producer is afraid to produce, a director is afraid to direct, and a writer is afraid to write for fear anything he might say or do 
will be controversial to the point that he might be accused of the same thing the witnesses who have been called here have been accused of. Which means, in simple language, that good adult entertainment flies out the window and shallow water flows in the door. Before the Committee for the First Amendment arrived in Washington, they felt they had the media on their side. But by the time they left Washington, that had changed. The press had mocked the movements of the rich movie stars who came to defend the communists. The message that the movie stars thought they were defending the Constitution and not communism got completely lost. A columnist for the Hearst Syndicate would soon thereafter accuse Houston of being, quote, the brains of the Communist Party West. According to Marsha Hunt, Hedda Hopper made it a personal mission to take down not just probable communists, but every member of groups like the First Amendment Committee who supported and accused communists' basic rights. Bogart apparently felt the change in the air pretty quickly. Some reports say he lashed out at his fellow committee members on the plane home, while others suggest that many members of the brigade booked their own flights home early out of embarrassment. Certainly, the right-wing press, and in this climate, virtually everything save for the daily worker was leaning right, started attacking the unfriendly witnesses and their supporters in real time. After Congress voted to indict the Hollywood Ten for contempt, Bogart allowed a statement to be syndicated to Hearst Papers under the headline, As Bogart Sees It Now, which read in part, I am not a communist sympathizer. I went to Washington because I thought fellow Americans were being deprived of their constitutional rights, and for that reason alone, that the trip was ill-advised, even foolish, I am very ready to admit. At the time, it seemed the thing to do, I have absolutely no use for communism, nor for anyone who serves that philosophy. I am an American, and very likely, like a good many of the rest of you, sometimes a foolish and impetuous American. Many who remained loyal to the Hollywood Ten and or the Communist Party assumed that the studio heads had threatened the members of the Committee for the First Amendment to back off or risk losing their own jobs. Abe Polonsky said that President Truman had actually sent a general to Hollywood to intimidate the studio heads into threatening their committee for the First Amendment stars. According to Polonsky, this intimidation worked because most stars were totally dependent on their salaries and couldn't risk breaching their contracts. Ira Gershwin hosted a second meeting of the committee for the First Amendment after the hearings, And according to Polonsky, it was a comparative ghost town. Most of the stars had been scared off. Bogart showed up furious. He got up in Danny Kaye's face and yelled, You fuckers sold me out! Before storming out. Marsha Hunt believed Mr. and Mrs. Bogart in particular had been threatened by their studio head, who was Jack Warner. This seemed especially likely after Bogart, the only guy in Hollywood whose entire persona was based on being his own man beholden to no one, published an article in the March 1948 issue of Photoplay magazine in which he declared, I'm no communist. 
Nobody said he was, exclaimed Hunt, who categorized Bogart's betrayal of the cause of free speech as a tragedy with lasting consequences, precisely because he had been so vocally supportive before the hearings. Hunt would find something out about consequences. She was not a communist, but because she refused to apologize for her activism in support of free speech, she was blacklisted. Certainly, it seems plausible that the First Amendment supporters were encouraged to lay low by their bosses, but also by the negative press they were getting. That seems like a more likely explanation than the one Houston offered of suddenly having a change of heart in the halls of Congress when the screenwriters got too shouty. But Houston's explanation makes sense for him, a guy who valued his image as an iconoclast. In his autobiography, he'd go on to describe all the trouble he ran into for going his own way over the next few years. He and Billy Wilder were the only members of the Screen Directors Guild who voted against forcing all members to sign an anti-communist loyalty oath. When Louis B. Mayer asked Houston to make a documentary lionizing Joseph McCarthy, Houston responded, LB, you're out of your goddamn mind. Houston followed up back-to-back Bogart hits with We Were Strangers, a movie about Cuban revolutionaries starring John Garfield and Jennifer Jones, a film Hollywood Reporter called Shameful and, quote, the heaviest dish of red theory ever served outside of the Soviet Union. Shortly thereafter, Houston would leave the U.S., first to make movies, and eventually to settle in a castle in Ireland. Of America, he'd write, It had, temporarily at least, stopped being my country, and I was just happy to stay clear of it. To Bogart, the photoplay article was what he had to do to hold on to who the public thought he was, and all that persona had earned for him, particularly after the December 1947 death of Bogart's producing partner, Mark Hellinger, which left the actor once again at the mercy of Warner Brothers. He sought refuge in an only slightly self-mocking image of himself as, to quote the photoplay article, Bogart the capitalist, who always had loved his swimming pool, his fine home, and all the other Hollywood luxuries. On the set of their next film together, Key Largo, John Huston told reporter Lillian Ross that Bogart had failed in his brief bout of politics. He owns a 54-foot yawl. And when you own a 54-foot yawl, you've got to provide for her upkeep. Released four months after the photoplay story, Key Largo was a big hit, perhaps indicating that Bogart's PR offensive had done what it was supposed to do. But this was only 1948. The Hollywood 10 hadn't even been sentenced to prison yet. Anyone in Hollywood with a history of association with causes that could be construed as pro-communist would have to tread lightly for many years to come. While still under contract to Warner Brothers, Bogart was able to form a new production company named Santana after that 54-foot boat. But the last two films Bogart made under contract to Warner's and the first four he made for Santana were box office disappointments. This included In a Lonely Place, which was not recognized as the masterpiece that it is until later, 
maybe because its depiction of paranoia and skepticism, in which friends and lovers were more prepared to believe the worst of each other than to keep the faith and offer emotional support, hit too close to home. By 1950, Bogart had dropped off the list of the top ten box office stars. During the 1947 HUAC hearings, a number of anti-communists, including Adolf Menjou and Gary Cooper, had said that the public would perform their own blacklist by rejecting at the box office films made by communist sympathizers. Was that what was happening to Bogart? Maybe. But if any damage had been done, Bogart's next film would reverse it. Let's back up a bit. That Katherine Hepburn showed up at Gilmore Stadium that evening in May 1947, resplendent in red, was either an unfortunate mistake or a deliberate provocation. The event was a rally to support Henry Wallace, the very leftist former vice president and Roosevelt administration cabinet member who would ultimately run for president in 1948 on the Progressive Party ticket pushing an ahead-of-his-time agenda of civil rights. Gilmore Stadium was a minor league baseball field on the land, now occupied by the outdoor mall, The Grove. The 28,000 people who came to support Wallace that night constituted the largest crowd the arena had ever held. And Hepburn wasn't the only star in attendance. Charlie Chaplin, Edward G. Robinson, John Garfield, Hedy Lamarr, and Paul Henreid were there, too. All this for a politician who was widely accused of being a socialist just six months before the studios would declare their intention to fire and refusal to hire any employee with communist ties. In her column, The Day Before the Wallace Rally, Luella Parsons had written that she hoped the rumors weren't true that Katherine Hepburn was planning to appear in support of Wallace. Hepburn would later say that she wasn't really there for Wallace, but to deliver what she called a speech against censorship. According to some reports, although not Hepburn's own, that speech was written by future Hollywood 10 member Dalton Trumbo. One of Hepburn's biographers gives credit to Arthur Lawrence, who would later dramatize the era in the way we were. Whomever was responsible, the speech called out the HUAC chairman by name and mocked the conservative Hollywood alliance. Today, J. Parnell Thomas of the Un-American Activities Committee is engaged in a personally conducted smearing campaign of the motion picture industry. He is aided and abetted in this effort by a group of Hollywood super patriots. Who call themselves the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals. For myself, I want no part of their ideals nor those of Mr. Thomas. In the stadium, Hepburn was given a standing ovation. Outside the stadium, she had branded herself as a defender of the defenders of Stalin, which was as good as waving a party membership card in the air. 
despite the fact that Hepburn was a previously apolitical wasp whose ancestry could be traced back to pilgrims on the Mayflower. When Louis B. Mayer saw the headlines the next morning and called Hepburn into his office for a chat, she wasn't afraid. She and Mayer had long been on good terms. And of all the actresses under his employ, Kate Hepburn was the one Mayer was most likely to treat as an equal. He didn't raise his voice. He simply asked her, why did you give that speech? She told him the truth. Mr. Mayer, I thought that somebody should make the speech, and I thought that somebody should be me. I think the situation is idiotic and out of hand. People are being crucified who can't afford it, and I can afford it. And then she worked some impressive reverse psychology, telling her boss that she supposed an employee who had done as she had done deserved to be taken off salary. Mayer didn't take the bait. But the speech had other consequences. Director Leo McCary, who had been all set to cast Hepburn in his upcoming movie Good Sam, announced to Variety that he wasn't going to do so now that Hepburn had become a lefty mouthpiece. The American Legion started pushing for a boycott of Hepburn's movies. Ronald Reagan publicly criticized her speech. Columnist Jimmy Fiddler exaggerated her appearance at this single event into a habit of public speaking, writing that Hepburn's, quote, extremely hot political speeches may queer her at the box office. There were rumors that Hepburn would be subpoenaed to testify before HUAC. Her picture was regularly read in newspapers under headlines like Hollywood Reds. The FBI started a file on Hepburn collecting such clippings. And Eric Johnston, the MPAA chief who lobbied the studio heads to agree to a blacklist, claimed that an audience of average ticket-buying Americans had actually thrown stones at the screen at a Chapel Hill, North Carolina showing of Hepburn's latest film, Song of Love. This may have been just because Song of Love basically sucked. But now Mayer didn't want to cast her in anything until the heat blew over, and neither did anyone else. Who knows what would have happened if Hepburn's boyfriend, Spencer Tracy, hadn't arranged to have Hepburn replace Claudette Colbert in his film, State of the Union. State of the Union would provide a political image of Hepburn in direct opposition to the one in the newspapers. Not as a dangerous subversive hell-bent on destroying American democracy, but as the voice of reason who sets Tracy's corrupt politician on the right path. State of the Union was a hit, and President Truman loved it, He requested a print to screen both on his yacht and at the White House. But the film didn't quiet the hysteria against Hepburn, and there still seemed to be a good chance that she would be called to testify before HUAC when they resumed hearings. Or maybe that she would be flat-out blacklisted before the committee had a chance to call her. That neither thing happened may have been because someone intervened on her behalf. As Hepburn's biographer William J. Mann speculates... It could have been Adolphe Menjou, Hepburn's co-star in State of the Union, and a friendly HUAC witness in 1947 and a member in good standing of the Alliance. Or it could be that the intervention took place later, because there was no doubt as to Hepburn's value to the industry after The African Queen. The African Queen was a film that only John Huston could direct a work of crowd-pleasing entertainment in an inherently feminine genre, romance, but made from an inherently masculine point.
point of view. And Hepburn and Bogart were the only actors who could play Rosie, the spinster missionary, and Charlie, the alcoholic boat captain. Or, at least, they were the only stars who could make the sexual pairing of these flawed and inherently unattractive people feel imperative. The shoot itself was a legendary adventure, and a misbegotten one by many accounts. If you believe the thinly-veiled version of the story told in the novel and film Black Hunter, White Heart, in which Clint Eastwood plays John Huston, the whole endeavor was an excuse for Houston to get someone else to fund his attempt to hunt and shoot an elephant. I'm not sure that was really his primary motive, but certainly his attentions were divided. As ever, Houston was drawn to chaos— where Bogart made sure Bacall could join him on set so as to ensure some level of domestic normalcy. Houston's then-wife, Ricky, stayed home in Malibu because she was pregnant. And Houston seems to have given his family barely a thought up to the moment when he learned of his daughter Angelica's birth while on set via telegram. Shooting began in a village built off a tributary of the Congo specifically for the production— There was a restaurant and bar and one-room bungalows for the crew, all of it billed out of raffia and palm leaves. Because of the danger of soldier ants coming in to feed on the structures as they started to decay, it was crucial that the shoot stay on schedule. They couldn't stay there for more than 30 days without risking infestation and attack. As it turned out, the infestation happened after only two weeks, and fires had to be set all around the camp to burn the ants off. In another location, cannibalism was a threat. One night, the African queen itself, the boat operated by Bogart in the film, sank while everyone was asleep. The stars didn't have trailers. Catherine Hepburn used what Houston called the jungle toilet, along with everyone else. And everyone was pretty much always using the jungle toilet. Because diarrhea. At least until a black mamba snake was spotted slithering down into the toilet. From that moment, Houston recalled, All symptoms of diarrhea in the camp disappeared. But the crew was still beset with dysentery and malaria. Over the course of four months in Africa, almost everyone had to take to their beds at some point. When the rains would come, that was it for shooting that day. Houston would use this time to hunt game, ostensibly to feed the crew. After haranguing him about his hunting for weeks... Hepburn finally agreed to come along one morning, and she took to the hunt immediately, maintaining her cool even when Houston accidentally marched them into the center of a herd of elephants. Bogart was less game, so to speak. Already in a morbid mood, annoyed by the feeling that his life was slipping away as Houston fucked off on the hunt, Bogart received word on set that Mayo Metho, his wife previous to Bacall, had died. Mayo's alcoholic early end didn't prevent Bogart from spending his free time sipping scotch, which Houston credited with protecting himself and his actor from the digestive ailments that everyone else was getting from the water. But the two men diverged in their fundamental attitude towards this adventure-slash-ordeal. Bogart couldn't wait to go home to the comforts of Benedict Canyon. If he could have, Houston would have stayed in the wild for the rest of his life. Back at home, The African Queen was released to the best reviews either Bogart or Hepburn had had in a while. The film became a popular hit, too, 
coming in right behind An American in Paris as the seventh highest grossing movie of the year. It was Hepburn's first box office hit, Sans Spencer Tracy, since The Philadelphia Story. Houston, Hepburn, and Bogart were all nominated for Oscars, but there was a feeling in the air that it was a streetcar named Desire's year. Bogart had historically dismissed the importance of awards, and even just one year earlier had lended his byline to an article which argued, It's about time someone stuck a pin in the Oscar myth and let out all that hot air contained in the Academy Awards. But now, he quietly campaigned. Nothing he had done had been this well-received in years. Not knowing what the future held, he turned to face the warm light of the machine. At the ceremony, a four-months pregnant Bacall, breathless in her tight Christian Dior gown and in anticipation of the announcement of the Best Actor category, watched nervously as Streetcar swept the first three acting categories, with Vivian Lee beating out Hepburn for Best Actress. Although in keeping with her personal tradition and priorities, Hepburn didn't show up to watch her own loss. Bogey was up against Brando in Streetcar, not to mention a place in the sun's Montgomery Clift. Compared to those two symbols of a new type of acting and a new male sensitivity, Bogart looked like a relic of a different Hollywood. The wartime Hollywood that the entirety of the culture, Washington included, seemed to have turned against. But he won, and he made sure to share the award with his collaborators. And his first Oscar. It's, uh, it's a very long way from uh, the heart of the Belgian Congo to the stage of the Pantages Theater. And I'm very glad to say that it's a little nicer here than it was there. I, uh, I just want to pay a, a slight, as a matter of fact, a very big tribute to Mr. John Houston and Miss Catherine Hepburn uh, because they helped me to be where I am now. Thank you very much. Houston, so committed to following his own path, would continue to garner negative headlines, many of them from Hearst and Hedda Hopper, for his supposed subversion throughout the 1950s. His next film, Moulin Rouge, would be picketed by the American Legion, and a few years later, right-wing columnist George Sikorsky roped him into a kind of roundtable interview, which turned out to be a low-key interrogation by the FBI— Sikolsky gave Houston's performance a good review, and that was basically that. He was never subpoenaed or blacklisted. That Bogart and Hepburn weren't, either, suggests that they were the beneficiaries of whatever backroom dealing almost surely took place, at whatever point, to ensure that none of Hollywood's truly valuable stars were called as hostile witnesses or denied employment for long when so many less famous people were deprived of work for comparative or even less serious quote-unquote crimes. Or maybe, after The African Queen, a film which celebrates Bogart and Hepburn's appeal as quintessentially American personalities, it was impossible to take either's subversive potential seriously. Next week, Barbara Stanwyck and Robert Taylor the poster couple for conservative Hollywood. Join us then, won't you?
Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. You Must Remember This is written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. With production and research assistance from Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our audio editor is Henry Malofsky, and our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. One way to let people know about it is by subscribing on iTunes and rating and reviewing us there. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University of Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.